Uh, the Velo News gear issue. Uh, you've been hearing me talk about this at the beginning of the podcast. One last time to promote the Valenius gear issue. It is on newsstands now. Beautiful green cover, bunch of pieces of gear on it. And I want to talk about a feature story that's in here that I think is fascinating by Leonard Zinn. And it's called, What is the Fastest Tubeless Setup? Leonard went and analyzed lots of different tire and rim combinations um, for tubeless tires and tubeless rims to analyze what has the um, lowest drag coefficient, the most aerodynamic. He looked at all these different features and ways to measure uh, speed with tubeless setups. And um, there's a lot of information in here, a lot of graphs. Leonard gets into the numbers and the mathematics and the science of it all. And I suggest you check it out because if you are a person who fixates on things like speed, aerodynamics, and friction, rolling resistance, this feature story is going to have a lot for you. So what is the fastest tubeless setup? It's in the VeloNews uh, 2020 gear issue on newsstands now. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here coming to you from a dreary, dreary Monday morning in Boulder, Colorado. It was wonderful. Over the weekend, I got out and rode my bicycle, saw so many other people out there riding bicycles, saw a lot of people riding in like ones and twos, not a whole lot of big group rides going on. Um, then I went to some other public places and not not a ton of crowds. There was a, a like a Democratic caucus that I went to. There were like three or four people there um, go to the stores and the crowds are pretty sparse. And that's because of uh, the growing fears around COVID-19 coronavirus. Um, if Unless you've been living under a rock or in a cave, you are familiar with the big global storyline going around about this virus. And it has had a huge impact on the sport of pro cycling already. On today's episode, we are going to talk with Andrew Hood, who has been doing some great reporting around the coronavirus and its impact on cycling over these last two weeks. Um, second half of the podcast, I'm going to link up with Betsy Welch, and we're going to have a discussion about the Monuments of Gravel. If you've been on VeloNews.com, you've probably read some of our content around the whole Monuments of Gravel project. That was the project to single out the five American gravel races that have the most prestige to win. Uh, we're going to have a big discussion about that. But let's get to it. Um, as we stand right now, Perry Nice is going on. Strada Bianca has been canceled. Milano San Remo canceled. Tirreno Adriatico canceled. Trofeo Alfredo Binda canceled. All the Italian races are canceled. French races are still going on. Multiple teams have pulled out of racing altogether. Mitchelton Scott team, Ineos, EF Education first pulled out of the Italian races. And we are looking at a really interesting landscape for the sport of pro cycling, one that I have never seen before in my time covering it. And that is the real fact that some of the biggest events on the calendar might not go on or they might be postponed. Teams are trying to figure out what to do. And it all stems back to this spread of coronavirus and COVID-19. So Andrew Hood is on the line. Um, Andrew, you've been talking to the teams and the team directors, specifically some of these teams that have decided to remove themselves from racing. And what type of feedback have you been getting from the teams about why they've made these decisions to remove themselves from the races for the next few weeks? 
Yeah, hi, Fred. Uh, thanks for having, you know, from even inside of a man cave, the COVID-19 coronavirus news is, is, is reaching us. So, uh, you know, big story, huge story over here in, in Europe. Of course, we saw Italy impose kind of a draconian quarantine on Lombardy, Lombardy in northern Italy, 16 million people under lockdown. Uh, and it seems to be popping up just like in the United States, kind of here in Spain and other places across Europe. So we'll see what happens. But, yeah, talking to teams – uh, the general gist, the takeaway was just the fear of the unknown. Uh, everything is changing so fast. It seems like the teams just did not want to get their staff, their riders caught out in a situation that really everyone's looking at what happened at the UAE tour. That left a big mark, I think, in everyone in the Peloton, simply because, you know, teams were all had staffers and riders there. There was a lot of uh, uncertainty surrounding that whole scenario. And a lot of people are just afraid of seeing that repeat itself. You know, that's a, uh, including, you know, that's an, another additional worry along with just, you know, the larger health issue of perhaps getting uh, infected by this uh, very novel, unknown uh, virus that is kind of sweeping the globe, right? It's like two weeks ago, remember like a month ago, where everyone was going to the UA tour and uh, coronavirus was like a little thing that was a, a, you know, a little dot, a little blurb there in the middle of a remote China. And it, you know, it suddenly showed up in UAE tour and then boom, it showed up in Italy. And now you're right. It's, it's, it's presenting really an unprecedented challenge to the racing season. Unlike anything I think we've ever seen since been a World War II. Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I had poor Jim Cotton on this podcast last week and I felt awful. I sent him to UAE tour. This was his big chance to go cover some big pro races and he finds himself locked in a hotel room in Abu Dhabi for five days. Um, just, you know, tried to keep himself from going crazy from boredom because that's the other thing about you're in the uae uh you don't get all the same websites that you get here in the states there's some different web access there so hoodie in reading your reporting though it sounds like yes the fear of communicating the diseases is, is there that is there with these teams yes the fear of coming down with the uh virus is is the fear but the real fear seems to be quarantine the fact that you might be at an event and a coronavirus um, case is located nearby or within the race. And all of a sudden, your marquee riders, star riders, are locked in a hotel room for two weeks, unable to train, unable to race. And there's a fear of that and the impact that it could have on performance goals later down the, down the road, right? Yeah, that's kind of a quandary that all the teams are facing right now. Because you see, in fact, this week at, at Perinice, a lot of the teams that have committed to keep racing, they've brought a lot of their big stars into Paris. Peter Sagan's there. Quickstep has its almost uh, full classics lineup there. Uh, Romain Bardet, the list goes on. All these guys are racing, and the other side of the peloton is not racing. So at a certain point, those riders that are racing, especially the ones going into the Northern Classics, will kind of have an advantage because you look at the riders who haven't raced, it'll be almost a month before they start racing again. Maybe they'll start racing the Volta Catalunya starting uh, late March. That's kind of the race everyone's kind of looking at maybe being able to start again. But it's going to be a more than a month since riders have come off the Tour of the Algarve or Ruta del Sol that was in mid-February going into uh, this, this whole block of racing they've missed. So Oh, but on one side, you ha you risk not having your riders race, but at least they're healthy and they're training. On the other side, you have your riders racing, but you risk them possibly be quarantined. I mean, imagine if this week Paris Nice gets blocked down by the French government 
and they put Peter Sagan on quarantine for two weeks. I mean, that's going to be real hard for Peter Sagan to try to go up and win Tour of Flanders, uh, you know, once he gets out of lockdown. Yeah, and, you know, all the Zwifting in the world isn't going to be able to maintain that form or build the form that you need to contend for some of these races. You're right. I think a lot of the teams are looking what happened at UAE Tour where, you know, here we are Monday, and I believe Kofidis just got released. I think Gazprom is still over there. You know, some of the teams just got released weeks later to be able to go home and start training and getting on their bikes. Not only have they they missed valuable opportunities to get racing efforts in their legs, but, you know, you're pedaling a stationary bike or not pedaling a bike altogether. Like your early season goals are pretty much squashed. And, and look, we, we both totally acknowledge that there's, you know, there's, there's a more important wider story here, which is the health and well-being of the global populace and the health and well-being of everyone in cycling. But you can't ignore the performance goals that these teams and riders have because, hey, it's, you know, it's the sport of pro cycling. Like there's, there's targets and there's objectives. There's the Giro. There's the Tour de France. There are these classics. And assuming they go on, people still want to win them. So I was, one thing I was thinking about with, some of these Italian races canceled and some of these other races uh, up in jeopardy. If, you know, some of the like smaller European tour races, Olympia's tour is going to, you know, have some world tour teams go to it. Maybe like the uh, Roman D will be extra competitive this year because all of these riders who missed opportunities to race in March and April are all of a sudden going to go and like, you know, use Roman D as a big launch pad. Because as you mentioned, like, with all the races going away, just the opportunities to build racing fitness and get racing efforts in your legs all of a sudden are getting siphoned off. Um, so that's definitely a concern as it pertains to uh, performance. You know, the other there's there's so much to talk about with this this building story. I mean, we have the cancel. I mean, Milano San Remo is gone. I was looking at some list over the weekend. It was like the last time that major classics were just outright canceled. And it was in the 1940s. I mean, it was like World War II, World Wars. You know, that's the level uh, that we're at with this thing. You know, Milano San Remo has been postponed, as they're saying. Uh, Same with Strada Bianca. Um, Where are we right now with what, you know, when on the calendar RCS may be able to hold these races? And what do we think that impact is going to have on the, uh, the schedule? Yeah, the first stuff we're hearing out of RCS would be kind of a natural link in with their, you know, they, they kind of run that fall classics program already with Lombardia, Milan, Torino. There's a few other races in that kind of last two weeks of racing in Italy. So the idea would be to kind of pop in uh, Strade Bianchi and uh, Milan San Remo and just make the season perhaps like a week longer. Everyone thinks that would probably work best. Um, and that would actually, you know, it'd be an interesting experiment because that would actually give a little bit of heft. You know, to that part of the calendar, we've always kind of lamented how Lombardia is this kind of forgotten stepchild of the Monuments Club. And then you put uh, Strade Bianchi and, and San Remo there. You know, maybe maybe uh, RCS might think twice about where those races are on the calendar if it kind of does happen that way and they can race those races. But having said that, you know, just last weekend we were at the Track World Championships speaking to La Partiente. And, you know, at the time, and things have moved quickly in the last uh, week or 10 days. But he was just saying Sunday before last, you know, how it would be quite difficult to try to reschedule some of these races because, you know, you don't want the racing season to go into October, into November. 
because uh, you know it's it's perhaps too long for the riders. But I think there would be a lot of pressure, you know, from organizers to get these events held, even if it is kind of comes in on the on the back end of the season. Now, whether you could slot in a whole Grand Tour in October, that's another big question. But I think finding room in the calendar for some of these one days that might get whacked right now. You know, I think, you know, out of respect for those races, you want to see those races held, especially those two caliber races. You know, Stradibiaki is almost like the sixth uh, sixth classic, sixth monument right now considered anyway. So I think most people like to see those races held. You know, another implication, Fred, that we've talked about as well, you know, who's your, your man there, Philippe Gilbert? You know, here's this big chance to become really the first modern rider to win all five monuments. And he was kind of ramping up for the uh, San Remo. And it kind of got the carpet pulled out from under uh, – uh, Gilbert there, you know, what's so Phil Jill going to say about this? Well, I thought it was interesting that the public comments they did get out of Gilbert, I think I saw this on Cycling News, was basically like, hey, public safety, public health comes first. And I could just imagine him like gritting his teeth and saying these things as deep down inside he was like, oh, God, why did I put in all those base miles? Why did I do all that training? This is the worst thing ever. Uh, because I, one of the elements of this whole story that I think has been very fascinating to me is that um, the coronavirus has seemed to um, reflect some of the national attitude, some of these national personalities that we see in cycling. You know, it's not just Americans. It's not just Brits. It's not just French and Belgians. But, you know, we're dealing with multiple cultures and multiple um, nationalities. And similar, like how I've seen on my own, like personal Facebook feed, where some people are like, oh, this is just overblown hogwash. Here's a, you know, a, here's a something that a, I know, I know a doctor and here's what he told me. This is just a big conspiracy around the election or this is just, uh, you know, this is totally overblown. It's just a way to ramp up sales of hand sanitizer. It seems like there's been a little bit of that in the cycling world where, you know, you look at some of the Anglo teams and they were very quick to pull out and say, hey, we're out of here. Uh, Movistar, they pulled out of racing. I thought that was interesting to see. They pulled out of the Italian races. Um, Takuna Quickstep, not so much. In fact, I think I saw a, on one of the sites there, Team Doctor was quoted as, you know, in so many words as saying like, "Pusha," like <laughs> this is, you know, wash your hands, don't cough on anyone, you'll be fine. This is like kind of overblown. Um, this is just hysteria. I remember an early in an early quote uh, as this thing was growing from Lefebvre, basically saying, "Ah, this is hysteria. We're gonna keep going." <laughs> Yeah, it's been interesting to watch how different teams have responded to it. You're seeing kind of some of the quote old school teams, you know, vowing to to race on, you know, quick steps, the lotto, the Belgians and the French teams are all committed, especially inside the French cycling community. I think there's a lot of uh, kind of sense of camaraderie that they want to try to at least hold the race. Um, you know, it's important to, you know, as long as they have the OK from the public health authorities, you know, I think it is still important for cycling to try to continue racing if they can because i mean you know even today we just saw the health minister kind of almost prohibit fans from going to Paris to the start and finish because they're trying to protect this uh this kind of one meter kind of uh barrier around human contact you want to try to keep the space so that's why they're trying to ban some of these larger public gatherings they've, they've banned soccer matches and concerts and congresses here in europe and uh they kind of let Paris go through uh, under the radar in that because they said, well, it's not the Tour de France. There won't be that many people. And then yesterday, of course, we saw surprisingly, really huge crowds, you know, fairly good sized crowds, both at the start and finish. And there was that one cobbled climb, you know, it was packed in with fans. And <laughs> I think that might have, uh, 
capture the attention of some of the health authorities saying, you know, we don't want this. We don't want Paris-Nice to be a 200-kilometer long uh, line of contagion, you know. So they've kind of put the clamp down on, on the large, you know, they don't want big crowds at the start and the finish. But I think the actual act of racing a bike is relatively low risk. I think the risk comes in from these, uh, you know, you're packed into a hotel, you're packed inside the team bus, you know, you're packed at the start and the finish. That's where the risk is, I think, for bike racing in Europe right now. And, you know, ASO, they've had a lot of meetings over this past week. They got the okay from the uh, French authorities last week on Tuesday, a week from basically today. And they said, uh, you know, uh, the race route does not go through uh, or does not even go close to contaminated areas right now because France is quite a bit less than Italy. And, they, you know, the, the ASO has taken a lot of measures to try to uh, lessen the, the risk of uh, contagion. You know, there's no podium ceremony. There's no press conferences. There are no uh, mix zones. Uh, the teams are doing their press uh, operations via Skype or, or WhatsApp groups. And, uh, you know, even inside the team hotels, they, they, normally they would pack in three or four teams in one hotel. They made some changes there, spread the teams out to more hotels so there's not so many teams in a hotel. And then teams individually are doing a lot to, you know, bring in and, and, and disinfect the team, the, the hotels where they're sleeping. They're bring, bringing in their own sheets. They're bringing in their own food. They're, you know, they're wiping down the tables, wiping down the bus. So they're doing a lot to try to mitigate any sort of uh, danger of contagion. So I think that they're trying to make a stand here as well. It's not – they don't want to just fold against this threat because you're right. I mean the last time these races have been canceled outright – I mean of course we've seen races neutralized for weather and different kinds of things. But to see a race canceled, we're going back to World War II. So I think a lot of the, the, the old school European racing community wants to do these races. And of course, you know, the pressure is going to be on the classics in no time. I and mean, already we're seeing comments out of Belgium that right now it's all systems go. But, uh, you know, they got to be nervous up there as well. Yeah, and there's so much – there's so many questions to ask about that. Um, our Betsy Welch did a great piece online where she spoke to a expert of respiratory diseases and talked about the concept of social distancing and how really what um, authorities are trying to do in situations like this is prevent crowded in groups of people. So like you said, it's not necessarily, you know, the fear isn't that riders are going to get it or riders are going to give it to each other. I mean, there is a, a small amount of that fear, but it's more along the lines of, hey, there's thousands of spectators crammed in along the start and finish and along the road at these races trying to get a glimpse of the riders and that is the public health crisis the potential public health crisis i mean you and i have both been in start and finish areas of big tour stages and i mean it's just like it's like a rock concert you know it's like there's you know people are just packed in there's pushing there's shoving if someone's coughing or sick like that's where you're getting into the spread of disease i mean it's just it's terrible so that throughout this whole thing the question i've been asking myself is like oh, how do you hold a bike race in europe and not have anyone there you know it's easy to do at these soccer matches where you can just close off the stadium and hold the soccer game without any fans there which they've done some in italy and it sounds like they may do some in france but bike racing there's such there's such these wild free organisms and expressions of human joy and emotion like you just go out there and stand alongside the road and go to the finish town and this um, announcement by ASO with Perry Nice following the French government's decree, you know, like, hey, you know, there's not going to be any spectators there. I think it'll be a really, it's going to be kind of an interesting sight to see, like overhead shots of the start and finish with nobody there. But it's just also going to be interesting to see whether the people adhere to it and whether, you know, fans don't show up and whether that, what impact that has on the event in general. Like if you throw a bike race and 
nobody shows up like is that is that fun to do for the riders i mean you know i i it, it's tough like sports is a tough one with this like sports is it's it is an expression of culture and it's a release and you know it's not like you know a plus most important part of society but it does serve a purpose and when you start canceling these things there is a there is a cost I'd say to sit, there's a cost to pay for the culture and for the people. Like, you don't, let's say there's no tour, you know, there's no tour de France. There's no Giro d'Italia. Like, that's a, that's a huge bummer. And we want everyone to be safe. But I, as one who loved the sport and follow it, you know, I recognize why um, governments and, you know, and the sport and teams want to keep going with the sport. I don't think it's just as easy to say, oh, well, there's this thing. Let's just cancel everything. That makes a ton of sense. Like, I, I, I understand why there is still a motivation to try and keep these things going. Yeah, it was interesting to see how even RCS, uh, considering how dire the situation is in Italy, they were still pushing really almost until the last possible moment to try to you know, to try to have Strada Bianchi, to try to have Torino start next week, just because, uh, well, actually this week, uh, because, you know, so much goes into these races. I mean, the communities get behind them. You know, we had the big crisis down at Tour Down Under earlier this year, you know, with global warming. That's another another big challenge that Cycling's going to be facing in the next 20 years. You know, it's kind of another existential threat in many ways. We have these big bushfires and, you know, we're seeing these extreme heat you know, hitting the races and all over the world. And the race down there was still very committed to try to hold the Tour Down Under despite, I mean, even the, the Tour Down Under, the bushfires were quite far away. But, you know, it kind of gripped the whole nation of Australia. But the local communities were really committed to trying to have the race anyway because it meant so much to them. It's like that's part of their identity, that community around Adelaide. They were like, yeah, we have complete respect for the people suffering from the bushfires, but this is also just as important for us to have this race. And I think the same thing applies to, you know, the communities along Paris or, you know, Strada Bianca at Siena. You know, that's one of their biggest events of the year. They had that, uh, the Grand Fondo, 6,000 people pours, pours into, uh, Siena every year, the year, the day after Strada Bianca. They had to cancel that. You know, so the, the cost for these communities, not only financial, but in terms of their own identity is very big. So I think, it's easy to sit on the couch, uh, you know, thousands of miles away and say, well, the easiest thing to do is just to cancel these things. And, of course, there is the larger question of, you know, the balance of trying to contain this this perceived threat. But at the same time, do we just like give up in, in our lives and just live inside of our houses for the next month or two months or six months? I think it has to be – you have to strike a balance. And it seemed, it's going to be an interesting experiment to see if Paranese can pull it off. Yeah, maybe there's no people on the road. Maybe, you know, it's kind of bizarre with uh, no podium protocol. But they're still racing, and I think it's a, a way to see how they can do this race in the larger context of how this develops across Europe. Because if it gets worse, it gets worse. But maybe it doesn't get worse, and you can still there's still space for uh, a bike race. Uh, before we get out of here, here's a jump ball for you, hoodie. You know, I've definitely seen some criticism on social media. Well, criticism on social media. What a novel idea. That never happens. Uh, I've seen criticism on social media about the role that the UCI has played in this entire thing, basically saying that the UCI needs to have more power and needs to be out there on the front lines, canceling races and telling teams not to show up and really playing a leadership role in deciding what that what goes on here. And um, just that criticism alone to me was like, wow, this like exposes um, really who has the power in some of these situations because the UC doesn't really have the power. The power 
really is in the hands of the organizer, but really it's in the hand of the government and the authorities as to whether or not these events go on. I'm, I'm with you. Like, I don't begrudge organizers for wanting their events to go long so long as the proper authorities are allowing them to go on. Um, there's so much – um, you know, you can't it, it, like you, you can't just wave a magic wand and say like, ah, Stratobianca even next week or two weeks from now. Like everything has been planned around that date, that specific time, that specific day, contract signed, financial obligations made, people coming in, hotels booked, like all of this stuff has been set in motion. It's been planned for months. Sometimes some stuff has been planned for years. You know, there's money that's been spent. I, I understand why organizers want it to go on, but you know, the criticism I saw about the UCI, I was like, well, what happened? What what would happen if the UCI had said like, you know, okay, yeah, you're canceling the races. Like there's part of me that says like ASO would just be like, yeah, right. Sorry, pal. <laughs> We're going. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Fred, there in terms of the, you know, the limited range of uh, the UCI. But I, th I think actually UCI played it straight there. I mean, what can they do, really? I think that uh, La Partiente and the UCI, they had a bunch of meetings with the race organizers. They talked to the teams. You know, the general consensus was, uh, you know, it, one blanket statement doesn't really apply to the entirety of the UCI calendar. It's so wide in its breadth, you know, it's all over the world. Um, so I think they, I think they made the right call in terms of just saying, let's let the local authorities make the final call because, you know, the UCI, the, 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 they have their uh, in-staff medical team, but, you know, they're not hardly experts in, in pandemics. Uh, so I think, you know, by deferring the, the final decision to the larger health authority, I mean, that's all they really can do. Uh, it's funny though, how, um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a story on Velo News that caught a lot of derision. It's like, you know, what could happen if Estrada Bianchi is canceled? Man, we got a lot of flack on that for uh, from some people on Twitter. And man, too, that just shows you how fast this has moved. You know, two weeks ago, uh, you know, four weeks ago, it was a some something remote thing in China. Then it got to UAE, and then it got to Italy and now the Italian calendar is canceled. So that just kind of tells you how fast things are moving. I think it's why I think a lot of teams are really being cautious right now. They just want to kind of like give it some space. Let's see how this thing plays out for the next couple of weeks. Well, it's definitely a story that's evolving and one we will be continuing to cover on VeloNews.com. We'll be continuing to talk about it on the podcast. I mean, I think back two years ago with uh, Chris Froome and the Salbutamol decision and that ended up being sort of the story of the season. I think this is exponentially bigger. I see this as uh, one of the biggest stories in pro cycling in the last several decades. And uh, we're going to be covering it here on VeloNews.com. Hey, everyone, wash your hands. Uh, if you're feeling sick, stay home. Um, cover your nose when you sneeze. Health use, sanitizer. Use that sanitizer. Um, let's do everything we can to prevent the spread of all communicable diseases. So, Andrew Hood, I will let you get back to your afternoon. We are going to catch up with Betsy Welch and talk about Monuments of Gravel. Okay, before we get to Betsy Welch talking about Monuments of Gravel, I had to call up James Start. James is on the ground at Perry Nice. He is shooting the event and um, is taking in all the action there from the uh, only pro race going on. James, you were there at the event when the announcement came down from French authorities that no groups or gatherings of over a thousand people would be permitted due to the, the spread of coronavirus, which will let, led to the race to basically ban spectators 
from showing up to the start and finish of stage two. You were there today. How would you describe the scenes at the start and finishing town? Interestingly, it wasn't that much different than yesterday, to be honest. Uh, we started in Chevreuse, which is a, it's a lovely little town. I know it well because I ride out there. was actually like the very first ride I ever took when I arrived in France. Uh, I don't want to say how many years ago. That was like the road I took. And it was it, I go through it almost every day when I ride. It's a beautiful little picturesque village. It's only about 22K out of Paris. But it's actually pretty remote. There's no train service there or anything. And there's really only like one road that goes through it. So even on a good day, it's not easily accessible, especially when you like bring a race like Paris-Nice into it. So that I wasn't overly shocked, to be honest. Um, I did actually, I saw a couple friends. I saw several friends of mine that were there. Um, I mean, it wasn't packed. The barriers weren't packed uh, by any means. But locals were, were there. Local bike fans uh, were there. Um, so for me, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't um, outrageously uh, surrealistic or anything. What type of uh, sentiment did the riders and directors have about this decision? What were people talking about amongst the group? Well, you know, since we started this race, I mean, even before this race started, we really never knew. Uh, what was going to happen? We didn't know if it was actually going to start, and that finally happened yesterday. And we still, you know, we really don't know if it's going to finish um, because, it, you know, the next step seems they're already talking about uh, having certain soccer matches without fans, you know, this and that. I mean, uh, who knows? If, if we go, if it edges up one more step in terms of se severity, they could pull the plug on the race later this week. Um, or, but I know everybody really wants uh, the race to happen, including the French authorities. And the fact that it's already been underway, uh, maybe they will say, "Well, after Paris Nice, we will, you know, have to ban sporting events." But it, it's 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 really, you know, it's just it's been so such so touch and go for the last few days, and that just that that sort of mentality just continued today with, uh, you know, the the the, the evolution of the uh, increased. Um, uh, restrictions uh, for Matt, you know, people, uh, group meetings of over a thousand people. When you talk to some of the team officials, um, some of the directors, etc., what seem to be their concerns around this right now? Is it just back to racing as normal? Are they thinking about the schedule, the canceled races in Italy, and its impact on the future? Like, what are people talking about right now amongst? Uh, the race community? Well, I'd say, you know, there's really a, quite a uh, desire to race and so that to, you know, the, not that the show must go on. That, that wouldn't be the right way to say it, but some people really want to get on with what they know what to, what to do at this time of year. And that's race bikes. And, you know, the, the, any center of, of, uh, where the, where the sickness is the thickest in France is over a hundred kilometers away. I don't get the sense to be honest, that people are on edge about this. I really don't get that sense. I think the teams that came here made that decision to come here. They are, and they are, uh, you know, they're, they're here to race. Um, and I think most of the riders are very grateful to be able to race. Um, and we saw, I mean, tremendous racing today. I mean, Peter Sagan driving the pace of the front. Uh, Mads Pedersen also, I mean, I mean, the race was splintered all, I mean, this was pure, pure, pure bike racing. I mean, I was sitting on a moto and it was just like, we had a front row seat and it, it was really exciting. And I mean, the biggest names in the sport were just going for it. 
not necessarily to win. You know, Sagan wasn't driving the pace because he thought he was going to win, but he's out there getting in shape for the, the classics, expecting that, that you know, and hoping that, that everything will, will settle down and, and, and go, come into place. I think that's the general mood. We just hope that the situation improves and we can, you know, race, that people want to race. And they're hoping that they're going to be able to continue to do that this week and then further on down the road. Yeah, that's something that Andy and I talked about, which was with the races being canceled in Italy, it puts so much more importance on Paris-Nice and some of the other races coming up that are going to continue because, you know, these athletes that have uh, bigger goals coming on down the road are going to really look at Paris-Nice and some of these other opportunities as as the last sort of big opportunity to get race fitness in their legs. And I, I'm curious if you've seen anything that speaks to that throughout the week, you know, athletes who maybe are going on longer breakaways or who are racing in a way that may be a little bit different in, in an effort to try and get more uh, more of a racing effort in their legs. Well, in terms of <clears throat> breakaways, there's only been um – uh, two-man break every day. So that, I wouldn't say that that hasn't uh, happened yet. But just the sheer amount of, you know, really intense racing the last two days. People are doing their homework. I was talking to Alephib. I mean, he, he's definitely, um, you know, he really wants this race. He really, because he really is um, trying to snap into to his top shape. Uh, he had a little bit of early season sickness, so he knows he has to, to, to get this race in his legs. And he was racing, you know, all out yesterday. 30-kilometer breakaway should have, you know, I... On a normal day, he would have won. But like I said, he's not quite, quite at 100%. And, you know, uh, Tish Benut, uh, obviously putting in putting in the chops. Uh, so, so he's ready for the classics. Uh, Gilbert was right up at front at the front yesterday. I was talking to him a little bit this morning. He's like, yeah, yeah, feeling good, you know, doing what he knows how to do. You know, Gilbert's one of those guys. He doesn't have to win all the time to be really on form and to be, uh, you know, really, really good when one of the monuments comes. He's just doing his homework, standing at the front, driving it. He's there. He'll be there. Nibali blew me away. Quintana blew me away. Um, you know, and then Sagan today, I mean, so impressive. So guys are clearly here to race. They want. They desperately want hard racing. They know they have to have it. And Paranese is the only place where they can get it. You know, you uh, had you and Andy contributed to a good report about some of the other precautions that the race is taking throughout the race weekend. This was even before the limiting of the crowds with stuff like, you know, limiting handshakes and not a lot of press availability. I mean, how does this race look and feel? What, what how, how is this race different from what you would normally see in an event from just the ebb and flow and uh, what what the feeling is like at it? The, the hardest thing for me to get my head around is the just the camaraderie that we have. I mean, cycling's, you know, one big family or several families that come together. And you always, I always say, you know, I never know who I'm going to see at a bike race, but I always know I'm going to see friends. And I see the same faces and I've been seeing them for years and decades. And, uh, you know, the French love to give the bisous les bees and we can't do that. You can't even, you know, shake hands. And, you know, we're supposed to be like fisting or elbowing and that sounds like more like a hockey move to me than something that you do with friends so that's just kind of been for me a, a bit weird uh, just the everyday conviviality that is bicycle racing uh is in a kind of limbo you know i mean we say hi to each other we chat and stuff but you know there's a distance it's been a physical distance that's forced on us because of of the measures that have had to be taken but you know prudhomme Christian Prudhomme is, is very adamant. He wants to send a message to the authorities, to the sanitary authorities. He wants to send a message to the bike racing community that we can have, find a common ground to continue 
racing and to continue having the sport that assures the sanitary measures that the athletes need. Um, and also lets us uh, have a great event. I think that's interesting perspective because, you know, right now we don't know how long this is going to continue and what other races or events may be impacted. But let's say ASO is able to create a successful model here at Paris-Nice. Um, maybe that's something that can be applied later on down the road at uh, Paris-Roubaix, at Criterium du Dauphiné, maybe even at the Tour de France. Um, we Again, we, we don't know what's going to happen with the COVID story and where um, you know, where we'll be several months from now. But I could see a scenario in which Paris-Nice um, goes off and is a success and, you know, the efforts to limit the crowds and to, you know, limit human contact uh, leads to nothing serious coming out of it. Um, perhaps that is a template that they could go forward with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Christian told me, uh, he said, you know, hey, maybe this is going to force us to do something, some things to make some changes that are actually good and, you know, make racing and the professional events uh, better. So we'll just have to see, you know, um, I'm certain, you know, uh, how many times does something go wrong and then it turns out to be a you know, blessing in disguise, right? Um, so we're just going to, you know, we'll have to see. And then, you know, I mean, as I, I mentioned uh, in our blog today, I mean, you know, we're going to have a race like Milan San Remo probably in the fall. Well, heck, maybe people are going to say that's a great time for Milan San Remo. I mean, I remember when we used to have the Vuelta España in May. And when they started turning into September, there were a lot of people said, ah, uh, September. And now today, nobody could ever imagine it um, in the Vuelta España any time other than September. And maybe, who knows, maybe, you know, some of these races will, uh, will even be better in the fall. And I'm just really speculating. It's only speculation here. But we don't know. We're like we're really in uncharted, unknown territory. Uh, before I let you get out of here, James, I mean, as the race stands right now, you were uh, we're recording this after stage two. Max Schachman is in the lead. We saw a very exciting stage on stage one, uh, like you said, with Alaphilippe and Benut out there on a breakaway. Schachman and Dylan Toons bridge across for a really dramatic finish. I mean, just seeing the form that people are in at this point, how do you see this race playing out? Who do you think is going to win? Well, man, I, I got to say, you know, I mean, the guys who impressed me on the GC, I mean, Quintana had very bad luck today. Varde had bad luck yesterday. Uh, both crashed and lost time. Alaphilippe had bad luck today. He flatted and he finished with Quintana. So that, they're you know they're all down, uh, you know, a minute and a half or almost a minute and a half or more. So um, I think that's you know that's a lot of time. This race usually often and so often comes down to seconds, right? Um, it, it, despite the fact that we have time trials and despite the fact that we have several days of, of very serious climbing at the end. But, you know, the two guys today who came out way out ahead are Vincenzo Nibali and Sergio uh, Guita, uh, Colombian, who, you know, won the Tour of Colombia and is national. I mean, he's this little guy, and he was right there for the final sprint. Nibali came off right at the end, lost about three seconds. But both of those guys came here with GC intentions, and both of those guys are in a very good position right now. Uh, I'll be curious to see how the time trial plays out, uh, who gets the upper hand there. Um, but I would say those two guys right now, if they can stay out of trouble tomorrow, they're going to be going into more familiar territory after the TT. And I think it'll be, uh, it'll be, uh, it'll be very interesting. But I think uh, they're in a very good position right now, I have to say. Well, James Start, you can read his reporting on VeloNews.com. He's at Perry Nice all week long at a very strange, different Perry Nice, <laughs> but uh, one that we hope makes it all the way to the end. Thanks again, James.
Yeah, can't. Yeah, I really can't. Uh, hopefully, I, I look. I, I look so forward to arriving in Nice every year. So it'd be really disheartening not to make it there. I, I'm hoping, as is everybody here. Uh, welcome back to the Venus Podcast. Fred Dreyer here, joined by Betsy Welch. We are going to talk about the Monuments of Gravel project. You probably saw some of our content on VelaNews.com this past week where we listed off four of the five races that um, are in our list of what we're calling gravel monuments. Um, before we get into... Well, first of all, Betsy, uh, what are the four races? Like, you know, what are the four races and why do you think these races deserve to be uh, to be highlighted and called out? Well... To no one's surprise, the first race was the Dirty Kanza, uh, which everyone agreed was um, the most prestigious gravel race to win. It was an unequivocal monument. We had the Belgian Waffle Ride um, coming in pretty hot. A little more debate on that one, not necessarily if it's prestigious to win, but if it is indeed a gravel race. Then we had the Mid-South coming up here in a few days. Very exciting. Lots of love for that one. And finally, Steamboat Gravel. Um, first year event last year um, that people are are pretty impressed by already. So the whole Monuments concept was uh, something I came up with, well, actually, like on a run one day, which, you know, we've been doing lots of coverage around gravel racing on VelaNews.com. And the gravel scene is growing and exploding. And I don't know how many times I've gotten the question, yeah, okay, there's all these gravel races out here. Which ones do I actually pay attention to? Okay, Dirty Kansas, sure. But what about the races sort of a step or two below that? Which ones are getting the, you know, the stars, which ones should I try to, which ones do I want to race and which ones do I want to follow as a fan? And so since these races are all these big, long one day events, I felt like there was a normal uh, comp to the big one day races of uh, European road racing, which we call the monuments. And there's five of them. And the why those five road races are called monuments, it's pretty easy. They're the oldest longest and the hardest and because of that the prestige to win them naturally comes with that um when i was thinking about well how do you pick out five quote-unquote monuments of gravel five gravel races that really matter um well that don't just they all matter but like where there's a lot of that matter more than the others that you, how do you call out like a series you've probably seen other websites like creating their own series of gravel how do we create the five monuments the ones that we really want to focus on um you can't just say the oldest because dirty Kansas has been around for a long time there have been other races that have been around for like a really long time that are pretty small and nobody really like they don't generate a ton of attention you can't say the hardest because like a 350 mile gravel race is probably the hardest thing out there, but maybe only 12 or 13 people do it. Um, and you can't really say like longest, hardest, how hard is whatever, you know? So to me, the defining criteria really came down to prestige to win. Like which ones generate the most amount of attention and prestige to win? Not the favorite, not the one with the coolest, tastiest feed zones or the best you know, finish line gift, but just like the ones that are going to get the most attention if you win. And because it was that, I was like, well, we need to ask riders who have actually won these things. We need, that's going to be our voting pool. And look, I've definitely gotten some criticism in my inbox from people who are like, 
why didn't you let John Q. Public vote on this? Like, we should have had a vote into what gravel races constitute monuments. But since it's prestige to win, and that was the defining category, I wanted to actually get the opinion of riders who have won these events. So, Betsy, you were charged. Well, we all were charged. You were charged, I feel like, with reaching out to more of them. But you reached out to a lot of these riders. And when you posed that question to them, prestige to win and the overall monuments concept in general what was the initial feedback that you got from some of these uh these riders you know some riders require they they required no um explanation they they took the question and sort of ran with it and other people did want to know a little bit more um break it down for me so like you said like wait so it's not the hardest it's not the longest um and i think and I think it was Amity Rockwell who really summed it up best. She said, you know, Dirty Kanza gave me a career. So that's a pretty good definition of prestige, I think. You know, other races make someone a stronger rider or, you know, have other outcomes. But we were looking for what, for a lot of these pros, what, um, you know, what were your, what makes your sponsors happy? Or, you know, what podium pick is going to stick with you the longest? Um and and once we we sort of scaled that back, I think um, people had fun with it. And like you said, a, a, most of these races have been around long enough that um, the same races are on the same people's radars. Yeah, I mean, you know, Dirty Kanza was unanimous. Like every single person we reached out to was like, okay, prestige to win, Dirty Kanza. Some of the feedback I got, though, was people were like, well, obviously this isn't a list of people's favorite races because like, you know, nobody really – like people don't really – I mean, people like Dirty Kanza, <laughs> right, right. but they're not like, oh, man, I had such a fun time out there totally. for 200 miles. It's like strength of field, amount of attention – sponsors, fans, media attention, boom, prestige. Like, that's a big one. Um, I, so, so yeah, Dirty Kansas was uni- unanimous. I thought the interesting debate was around BWR, which received um, a second most amount of votes. But there was actually this debate about like, wait, is this actually uh, a gravel race? Because there's a lot of road sections. What were some of the um, the feedback and the perspective you got around BWR? Like you said, I think everyone I talked to um, picked that one, and which says to me that's the only one on the list that actually I haven't experienced personally. Um, and what it it kind of says something to me about the culture of that race, um, even though it is what like a hundred miles of pavement to forty a gravel or something like that. Um, clearly, it is culturally a gravel race, and so I think that's that's pretty cool. That speaks a lot to how. Um, you know, the culture around a race can really shape, um, I don't know what, what boxes it ticks off. Um, yeah, looking forward to that, but also pretty scared for that reason. Yeah. What, what, um, in my opinion, what pushed that over the line for what does constitute a gravel is like you said, culturally. So it's a lot of the same people participating in these races. So like the gravel tribe goes there, but to me it was like, A, it's mass start. So it's not category race. And then B, the sections of dirt and gravel are gnarly enough so that you would never, ever, ever be able to put them in a USA Cycling sanctioned race. Like you would never – like a traditional road race. Like, yeah, there's a lot of road, but the sections of dirt are so like 
crazy that you couldn't put it in like a traditional road race. It's not like a, it's not like a dirt road. It's like a trail and single track <laughs> and like crazy bumpy stuff. So in my opinion, okay, you know, and then there's the great debate about gear and like, do you use a gravel bike or road bike? What do you use? Um, to me, that was all really interesting. And so that tipped the scales on that one. Um, Mid-South, formerly Land Run 100. I was actually surprised to see this one get so many votes, not because I don't think it's an amazing event, but because like there's that tie into Dirty Kanza where it's, you know, it's sort of culturally similar Midwest. Bobby Wintel got the idea after um, going to the Dirty Kanza and relocating to Stillwater to start his own event. And, you know, there's there's a lot of similarities between the two. And so I thought maybe people would say, well, you know, it's a little too similar to Dirty Kanza. Um, but no, everyone loved that event. The feedback that I heard was like, you know, people love the organizer and the organization. It's really, really well run. Um but then also, like, it, it just gets a really, really strong field. So it was almost like strength of field tipped people also in the in the direction of, like, this constitutes a monument because, like, okay, it's only 100 miles, but, like, winning it means you had to beat some really strong riders. What did you hear about Land Run or the Mid-South? Yeah. One of the other things about Mid-South, um, like I said, it is just – um, in a few days, it's it kind of stands alone on the calendar. Um, so I think that that earns it some prestige. It, it's not really conflicting with anything. Um, it's it's well known that there's you know a, a pretty big race in mid March, so that draws a field. The other thing too is unlike the Dirty Kanza, which becomes a bit of a suffer fest and a race of attrition, the Mid South you can go hard um, the whole time. Um, so that too gives it a little bit, um, of an edge on races like DK or, you know, even steamboat at 140 plus miles, um, a hundred miles feels like a lot less than that. Yeah. And if you look at that race in recent years, I mean, there have been, there's like team tactics that go on there. There are, um, breakaways and regroups. It's very similar to a road race in the years in which it's dry and fast in the years in which it's wet and muddy. Boy, you look at some of the photos and it's just this, like these mud people out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you look at the finisher numbers are pretty low. Um, it seems like that one has the highest variance of com uh, conditions of like how hard it's going to be. And like the finisher numbers and, and Betsy, you're getting ready to go out there and i think they're calling for a muddy year oh you can see me grimacing yeah the forecast is um kind of getting worse as as the as the days go by so we shall see um and we'll keep our fingers crossed that it's not a total suffer fest. But again, I was psyched to see that race make it on there um talk to pace and mcelveen about uh mcelvin Sorry, Payson, um, <laughs> about his experience there and how it, you know, it turned into this like three up sprint for the line and how it, you know, winning it, winning that race actually convinced him to split his program now between mountain biking and gravel. Um, to me, that spoke towards um, the prestige of winning it where like a, a established pro in mountain biking um, was convinced to, you know, pitch his sponsors and structure his program around gravel racing and mountain biking after winning that event. Um, we had some controversy on our fourth choice, Steamboat Gravel, S-B-T-G-R-V-L. Um, first off, Betsy, I mean, what, why do you think this race, um, was voted a monument? It didn't receive the most amount of votes, but it did receive enough votes to separate it. You know, it was one of the top four races to get uh, votes from our voting pool. Why do you think it made the list? 
I think there were probably a couple of factors. I mean, Steamboat came out the gates really, really strong last year, um, owing in large part, I think, to their um, promotion team, some really accomplished people putting that race together, people who have been professional riders, people who have been in the industry, and um, you know, they really dialed into what would make the best race, um, what would you know, if we were racing, what are these things that we would want? And they ticked a lot of boxes. And I think one of them was um, payout. This race offered a pretty sizable um, prize purse in a, you know, cycling discipline that isn't known for giving out money. Um, they also put a big focus on parity. So trying to get women's numbers up, um, and consequently attracted a super deep field of professional women. Um, I mean, a lot of other factors played into, I think, why it was so successful overall, but in terms of the prestige, um, you know, it was, the, the money was big and I think people knew that the big names would show up and it would be a really good race. Yeah. I mean, 28 grand in total prize purse, 5,000 to both the male uh, men's and women's winner. Um, it was to me, that was the big sensation of 2019 and that, you know, we've heard stories of dirty Kansas, you know, 38 people in the first event and it grows slowly and over time and over years and years and years, it builds this grassroots following that turns into mainstream following and boom, all of a sudden it's this global sensation. Um, and some of the other races on our list have that, you know, they've been around for six, seven, eight, nine years. Um, Steamboat kind of jumped to the front of the pack in a really smart and savvy way by offering this uh, $28,000 prize purse. Um, I don't think you can fault the race organizers for, you know, attracting this really strong field at the front, which helped them then sell out the rest of the uh, field through savvy promotion and social media and building buzz around the event by offering prize cash. And that's where, but that's where we got into the controversy. So we heard some feedback on social media and even web letters of people saying, well, you know, like, how can a first year event be a monument? This is so dumb. You know, the race has to be around for a long time. And look, my feedback was I was, well, look, I mean, we asked these riders who um, are winning these events and challenging to win, and they're the ones that said it. So, I mean, if you want to say that's a cop out for putting the, you know, attributing it to the riders, so be it. But I get it. Like, riders want to win money. If there's a lot of money up for grabs, then more of these elite riders are going to be there. And if there's a lot of elite riders there, then the actual prestige of winning goes up because of the strength of the field. So it is this, um, you know, it's it's one thing that feeds the next. So um, I don't know what to tell you if you're upset with it. um, I don't know comment on our Instagram post, I guess, and, and have fun with it. Um, now, there were a number of other races. There were a ton of races that did get votes, um, not enough votes to make it into the top four. But again and again, we heard some of these other cool gravel races uh, reference. Betsy, what, what races did you hear? What other races got votes? We heard votes for the Rift in Iceland, which is also a, a fairly new event. Um, Grinduro. Um, got a lot of love. Lost and Found, another California event. Um, Barry Roubaix up in Michigan. Um, yeah, you know, this for a lot of people, this wasn't an easy... Some of these, you know, aside from DK, this wasn't an easy vote. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you talked to Alison Tetrick, and it sounds like, I mean, I was reading the transcript of your interview, and there was just like all these like pauses and her thinking and being like, well, you know, what does constitute prestige? I really like the riff. There was good field there. I got like a Viking helmet for winning or whatever, but is that more prestigious than, you know, Rasputitsa or, or whatever? Um, it, it, to me, it sounded like a lot of these writers had a hard time really narrowing the vote. Totally. And that really made me happy is that while they were able to say, okay, fine, you want us to to tell you what's most prestigious, we'll do it. But really, our heart is still with these great community events. And like, let us also tell you in addition to what's prestigious, let us tell you how much we love Bobby's hugs and, you know, <clears throat> the, um, the swords that they give the winners at Gravel Worlds. Like, let us let you not forget about those things. Um, so know that all of that came through in our conversations with these writers too. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is that, look, all of these races that go to that were voted onto our list, we are going to go and cover. We'll be there. Betsy will be there participating, participating in it, et cetera. But we're still going to go check out the grassroots events. Um, we're still going to go to the Spirit World 100s out there <laughs> and the um, – Oh, what was the one that I checked out in California a few years ago? The Rivet Raid, you know, um, to, to see what is going on in this gravel scene and gravel community. Because you know what? Like a couple of years from now, this list may be uh, maybe entirely different. So as um, as luck would have it, we didn't pl- we didn't plan it this way. It just kind of happened. But we tallied the votes. And sure enough, there was like a dead heat tie for the fifth monument, the races that got you know, that we're going to be the number five monument. Two races got the same amount of votes. One was Rebecca's Private Idaho and the other is Crusher and the Tusher. And both of these events have been around a long time. I mean, Rebecca's is tied to Rebecca Rush, who is a larger than life personality. Um, you've probably seen social media posts from RPI of people like not just riding, but also like swigging beers and having a great time. Um, with Crusher, it's all about the elevation gain and like bike choice, bike choice. And it's this really tough mountainous gravel race. Um, what feedback did you get from people about these two events? That they're super different, actually. And the reasons that people love each of them were were quite different. Um, like you said, Crusher is a lot of vert, um, a lot of climbing. It's only, I think it's just 69 miles, so uh, shorter distance. Um, from, from the get-go, has always attracted a pretty competitive crowd, a um, lot of um, professional mountain bikers. Um, bike choice is always a big thing, um, but but a beloved race. Um, people love the organizer and um, the the vibe he creates there. Rebecca's um, held out in the Sun Valley, Idaho area, um, is beloved for that backdrop for one. Um, kind of more of a festival atmosphere. So there's also a stage race. So I think people come, stay longer, camp. Like Fred mentioned, there's some hanging out, um, but still, you know, a super tough 102 mile sort of marquee race that both the stage racers do and people can do on their own. Um, so those are some of the reasons that that people love Rebecca's. So right now, 
you can go on our website and you can decide the fifth monument because what we decided to do is, hey, these two races, you know, the voting is tied amongst our voting pool. So, yes, let's open this up to a public vote. And so right now on our website, you can go and vote for Crusher or Rebecca's. And look, we're going to go to both races this year. Um, we're not going to say, you know, oh, well, like the people voted, you know, Crusher above Rebecca. So sorry, we're not going to go to Idaho. We're going to go to both of them. We're going to cover them. We're going to have a good time. We're going to talk about gear and culture and tire choices and everything. Thing. But we wanted to um, let you listeners, you readers, um, weigh in and uh, decide. So we opened the polls this past Friday. We will run it through this coming Friday, and we'll announce the winner on Monday uh, on VelaNews.com. So if you've enjoyed the Monuments of Gravel thing, if you want to participate, we urge you to go and vote. It's been fun um, talking to riders about their favorite races and the hardest races and the most prestigious races. Um, and we are going to be out there starting this weekend. <laughs> Betsy at, uh, at Mid-South. Betsy, what are you, was it like top 10 or go home? What are your expectations for this weekend? <laughs> that would be our, our coworker, Ben. He, he's gonna, he's gonna carry the, um, the Velo News torch out there, but you know, I'm excited because I did it last year and it was really my first gravel race and really gravel experience ever. And it was so fun. And you, you can't say enough about what Bobby's done in Stillwater and around uh, Mid-South. Um, so in addition to being excited for the riding, you know, there's music, there's beer drinking, there's getting together with people that you see year after year. Um, sure, I hope I'm a little faster, but... Um, Everyone's talking about mud, so we'll see. Well, it's the Monuments of Gravel. It's on VelaNews.com right now. Thanks for checking it out. And we will catch up with you next week on the Vela News Podcast. <laughs>